you need to constantly generate positive energy, passion, if you will. If your leader is not passionate about something, your employees and the team members will also not be passionate, right? Like whether your sports team or company, that is true. If you don't believe you can win, you're not going to win. And I think, you know, generating that energy, finding ways to motivate yourself, um, you know, pick yourself up after a loss, you know, it's we all lose at times in life, you know, whether you're losing a deal or whether, you know, you have a, had a downtime because the thing you deployed had a bug in it. That, that happens. That's part of who we are as humans. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you enjoy the pod, the best way to show your support is by leaving a review. Thanks. I am curious. How much of your calendar do you not control at all? CEO of GitHub, you're like one of the most important people at Microsoft. Microsoft is a pretty big company. I imagine there are so many meetings for meeting's sake. I don't know. The funny answer is, or the honest answer is, I don't control anything of my calendar because Michelle does control my calendar from Nothing. that perspective. Um, I mean, my weekend is mostly controlled by me uh, and, and partially controlled by my family and vice versa. It's a good mix. Um, if you're asking, you know, how much is Microsoft determining what meetings I have to attend? There's a number of them, maybe less than 10 hours a week. Uh, obviously, you know, Satya does like an exec staff meeting with all the corporate vice presidents and higher level once a month that I, you know, if I'm available, will attend. And if I'm not available, I just watch the recording later. But that's two hours every month that I don't control at all and just appears on my calendar. And it's either, you know, I attend or I... I'm getting, and you won't I'm like, losing the content. You won't like get a shellacking if you don't go? No, I mean, it's like, it's still like 250 people. That's how big the meeting is? That's how many CVPs Microsoft has. At CVPs and distinguished engineers and the CTO and the, board, uh, the, the SLT and whatnot. And then does titling work? Can you have a CEO title? Like, can you be the CEO of GitHub yeah. and then also have be leveled as something else other than CEO or is CEO a level? No, so a CEO is a title. So I'm the CEO of GitHub as yeah. a title. And then, you know, from a, there are certain legal responsibilities that I have as a CEO, as GitHub is still a separate entity. GitHub Inc. still exists based in San Francisco. So I'm the CEO of that company. At Microsoft, I'm leveled as a CVP. So I have the, you know, I'm equivalent to, for example, the CVP of Power Platform in how I'm leveled. That makes and, sense. But, you know, everybody in those meetings acknowledges me as the CEO of GitHub, similar to the CEO of LinkedIn. Similar to uh, the CEO yeah. of LinkedIn. Yeah. It's the same deal. It's a similar deal with a different reporting structure. Yeah. Right? He reports to Satya, I don't report yeah. to Satya. That makes sense. Yeah. But yeah, it's kind of like, we have Thomas here, the CEO of GitHub, not we have Thomas here, right. CVP of, of Microsoft, course. also the CEO of GitHub. Right, 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 right. This Satya dude, like, is he <laughs> as legit as yeah. people say he is? Yeah, because I got to be honest, it is unbelievable what yeah. he has done. And obviously it's a team effort. Obviously there is more than just him. It is unbelievable what he has done. Do you agree? I think Satya is exactly how he appears in public also within the company. For me, the most amazing thing is the level of energy and excitement that Satya has from Monday morning to Friday afternoon and, and over the weekend. Yeah. Every time, you know, he calls me, he's like, Thomas, you know, yeah. and we need to talk about something and GitHub and GitHub Copilot and whatever the topic is, there's a high level of energy and motivation, high level of excitement. And I once asked him, how do you do this? Like, how do you stay excited about so many topics as the breath 
of the Microsoft portfolio is so big, right? Like if you think about Xbox and Windows and kind of like the consumer business all the way to the cloud and GitHub and farther out into Dynamics and Power Platform. And LinkedIn. And LinkedIn, like very businessy tools, recruiting tools. And he's like, I'm really excited about all of this. I love working on all these products and I am totally, you know, on board with the Microsoft mission and what we're building here for the world. So I think that's a key. It's the passion and the energy that makes Satya such a great leader. Your energy strikes me as similar though. Like you do not seem to me to be the guy that goes to bed Sunday night dreading Monday morning. Am I wrong? That might makes a CEO a true CEO. And I think that's the difference between a founder or somebody who runs a startup and somebody who is an employee of a large company. As a large company employee, you're probably dreading Monday morning on a Sunday afternoon. You're kind of like regretting that the weekend is over. We just had a long weekend, right? right. Uh, that the weekend is over and, and you're kind of like, ah, it's Monday again. I'd say I'm somewhat in the middle. Like most of the Sundays, I'm excited about the new week and talking with customers. And my best days start with a customer conversation that gets me so much energy. But there's sometimes Sundays where I'm like a little bit like a regular employee, right? Yeah. There's, there's things we have to do uh, in large companies that are part of the things um, of the compliance processes and whatnot, where I'm like, oh, totally. it's one of these weeks. Like legal and, uh, stuff, 100%. Legal stuff, compliance stuff, or, you know, just the following the rhythm of the business and, and writing a report or preparing a presentation. Big company stuff. That where I'm like, yeah, big company stuff, where while I'm the CEO of GitHub, I'm still part of the company that is Microsoft and where I can't completely pull myself back from that. My belief is that those that are happiest in their job, I think you spike around 85% happy, meaning I yeah. think there is always a minimum bar of at least 15% tax, <laughs> you know, yeah. of just, okay, this is a job right now. You know, I have yeah, to, yeah. like, I can't just talk to people like you all the time on the podcast and never do anything else. Like, I'd probably be 100% happy, you know? I've also found that before, you know, I had a small startup. I had even, you know, a, a company when I was in high school or a business, I guess, not really a company. And I think, you know, once you have gone through this, there's always like a percentage in you that wants you to go back into that world where you run your own company, where you have this full freedom, this full liberty of doing whatever you want to do. And this is more of a feeling than a reality, right? Because any company CEO, any company founder is constrained by something, resources, money available, runway, or, or just what they can physically build because of the people that are in their team. But, you know, as the CEO of GitHub and an employee of Microsoft, there is obviously then the other side where I'm like, the grass is greener on that other side. And if I could just leave GitHub tomorrow and do the startup thing again, I might be happier. And yeah. I think it's that feeling that, sadly, we don't have an A-B test in life. And it's this thing where I wish I could do both totally. and see if that would make me even more happy than I, than I am. And Enrique and I from Brex talked a little bit about how the grass is always greener. I agree with you, but you've kind of A-B tested it. Like you've been the startup CEO, <laughs> founder. It's trade-offs, right? Meaning- yeah. When you're running a startup, you have full autonomy. You decide your entire day. Generally speaking, your calendar starts at empty and then you fill it. Yep. However, there's like an existential threat of death. Like the company could die. <laughs> you could let yep. your shareholders down. Mm -hmm. You could let your employees down. You could let yourself down. You have bills to pay, right? Those are all things that you forget I imagine, when you look back, right? And then let's say you quit your job at GitHub <laughs> today, right? Uh -huh. And then you go back to a startup. All of a sudden, I think you're going to miss the incredibly exciting innovations that are happening. The team, the resources, working with Satya, working for an organization that I'd argue 
is one of the greatest we've ever seen. The learnings that come from that. You know, I so I always think that no matter what, I suspect even if you go one way or another, you're always lacking the other thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. And then I would definitely miss my team and all the GitHub employees. We call them hubbers. All the hubbers I'm working with on a daily basis, leaving them behind, I would totally miss. There's emotion attached to this, uh, let alone that, you know, we're doing amazing things and we're building things. I think, you know, yeah, I've done it before and I've seen both sides, but I've also learned so much in the last 10 years since I started the last company that I almost wish I, you know, now I can go back, try it again and see if I can now apply all those learnings to another venture. Totally. One other thing that you said that I wanted to double click on, maybe you meant it this way, maybe you didn't, is that you are the chosen, self-selected CEO of GitHub, meaning you opted in for the job at the company size that GitHub was at in Microsoft. The comment that you made was startup CEOs, they opted in to start a company in their wildest dreams. They didn't think that it was going to end up being a multi-thousand person business where it becomes management and leadership problems, not necessarily what usually starts out as technology problems. Is that kind of what you meant by it, where you know exactly what you're getting into? So yeah, you're mostly happy because this is pretty much the job you signed up for. I kind of double opt-in, I would say. I first opted in when Microsoft acquired GitHub in 2018, so now five years ago from when we're recording this. Microsoft needed somebody to execute the deal behind the scenes and you know coordinate all the different functions that are involved in such an M&A process to kind of like get from signing an LOI to signing a contract all the way to closing the contract, yeah. including the DOJ and the European Commission and all these things. So I decided to leave my product manager role behind to become that deal integration manager, whatever you and you have title no you had. Do you have experience doing that? Uh, well, I had experience for selling my company to Microsoft. Yeah. And then I had experience from being on the sidelines of a number of deals that the developer division at Microsoft has done in that time when I was a product manager. And obviously I was the CEO of a company before, so you know, and we were a small company, so I ran all the functions, you know, payroll and legal stuff and whatnot. Yeah. Or when if you're a 10 person company, it's basically the person that calls themselves <laughs> the CEO doing all of these things. So I opted in doing that. And then when the deal closed, I joined the GitHub leadership team, a special projects role and, and did a number of deals. And then when uh, the previous CEO decided to leave, I got offered the job as a CEO. That's when I made the decision to become the CEO of GitHub. And I think, you know, part of that decision was both of those decisions was that I love developing tools. I've been a developer for, you know, almost 30 years, if you count kind of like hacking as a little kid into that time period. And GitHub is an amazing brand and, you know, had a GitHub account for the longest time. So running this company, being in charge, being the captain of that ship, that was exciting for me when I became the CEO and it's still exciting to, for me today. You had a GitHub account like a year into GitHub's existence, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, something like that. It must have been relatively fast after they created the platform. Uh, a friend of mine and I went to a Rails Conf in, in Las Vegas, a conference about Ruby on Rails. The GitHub CEO and founder, Chris Wonstress, spoke at that conference and spoke about GitHub. And either we had already signed up for it or we signed up right after his speech. And it was a really great speech and lots of slides and, 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 and memes and, and whatnot. So Git was the big thing at the time, right? Everybody was hated subversion and wanted to move to Git. Isn't it surreal thinking this was 2009? Fast yeah. forward whatever, 12, 13 years <laughs> later, like you're running that company. Isn't that surreal? Isn't that just a weird feeling? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I don't have the time to think about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> it is surreal if you ask me it like this, but it feel, felt natural, you know, over the last five years to get to that point. So, you know, this is like you haven't seen somebody for five years and you realize how much they have changed in that time period. Whereas yeah. if you're there every day, if you see your kids growing up, you don't even notice how much they've grown until your iPhone shows uh, on the photo of the day how little they were like five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like that a little bit, right? Because totally. I there every day and we have so many operational things we're working on and products to launch and, and features and, and customers to pitch to. There's almost no time to just take a step back and think about, you know, how did I even get here? Does the work stress you out? Uh, I think at times, you know, I think it would be lying to say I'm never angry or I'm never stressed yeah. or I'm never like in a, in a rage mode and, yeah. you know, you get those emails that trigger you and then have kind of this rule where I'm like, let's the email sit until tomorrow morning. Usually by the morning after good nights of sleep, you have calmed down a bit and your tone changes. So if you get an email, <laughs> if you get an email that triggers yeah. you, that is just infuriating. Yeah. You won't do anything. Let it sit. Do not respond as best as you can until the morning. I would say that works maybe 80% of the time. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you have this great response, this great like pushback. It's it's building in your head and, you know, you're coming maybe back from dinner and you're like, now I'm going to give it to them and I'm writing it back, right? So, But it's not smart. It's not smart. You shouldn't do, be doing that. And uh, it's much smarter to just sleep through the night, kind of like let the rage pass or the anger pass or whatever it is that's triggering you and then in the morning write a much more calm email in response. Has your accent become less German over time? When did you start speaking English? So I started speaking English in seventh grade. Yeah. That's because I grew up in East Germany and I started fifth grade before the wall fell. Uh, Russian was the first foreign language I had to learn. And then seventh grade, I started learning English. Why Russian? Well, East Germany was part of the East Bloc, so it's associated with the Soviet Union. And so basically everybody in East Germany in fifth grade had to learn Russian. And then in seventh grade, you could pick between French and English, depending on what school you would go to. Was life pretty good or was it terrible? I'm actually sincerely asking, like, what was life like growing up in East Germany at the time? I was between age one and age 12, I guess. Yeah. War fell in 89, 90, I turned 12. As a kid, you know, I had a happy childhood. Um, obviously, there's desires that you can see on TV. And um, because I grew up in East Berlin, TV was all antenna based. Uh, you didn't have cable or anything like yeah. that, right? You would be able to receive the West German channels in East Berlin. And so you could see the ads, you know, for whatever Mars bar and Lego and all that stuff uh, if you would just switch the channel and you over to West Germany. Any of that but you couldn't stuff. buy any of that because you couldn't buy it with East German money and it wasn't available in East Why? German stores. Well, there was a there was a border yeah. between two like not very friendly sides of the world, I'd say, and um, the East German money was not a convertible currency, so you couldn't just convert East German mark at the time into West German mark or US dollar. And then ov obviously the East German government also controlled imports, what got imported into East Germany and what was available in stores. Yeah. And so you mostly bought uh, East German-made products and, and East Bloc-made products. Yeah, so it sounds like quality of life wasn't too bad. It was just more well, you isolated. The, you always want the things, as a kid specifically, you want the toys that you can't have. That's true even today, right? Like, um, if I look at my kids, I mean, the, the thing they desire most is more 
time in front of the Nintendo, <laughs> more screen time and less other times that the parents want them to do, less homework and whatnot. So it's kind of like the desires are erased by watching TV and seeing all the stuff that people on the other side can buy. It's not so much different from, you know, if you don't have the money and you're, you're growing up with parents that cannot afford all the toys, it's a similar desire. It doesn't really matter whether you're in a different country and you can buy it because the country doesn't import it or whether your parents don't have the money. But I think, you know, for the most part, we had a happy childhood and, and a child, it wasn't affecting me too much that there were two political systems. Obviously, education and what we got taught in school was very different than what that what kids on the West Side were taught. And were you also isolated from technology, generally speaking? Yeah, I mean, you know, we had a TV uh, yeah. and uh, we had a landline phone. What year was this? <laughs> was so I was born uh, in 78. And so when yeah. was like, when could someone in West Germany get a computer? That's a good question. I guess, you know, when were the first, like when was the IBM PC was 82, I think. And yeah. Apple II was before that. So I'm yeah. assuming early 80s, you could buy a Commodore 64 and a and an Amiga and, and all those things in West Germany and East Germany wouldn't have those again because they were not imported and the currency was not convertible. You couldn't just order a Commodore 64 in East Germany. And I'm super curious, how old were you when the wall fell? What year was that? 89, so I was 11. 89, November 9, 89 is when the wall fell. And so I was 11 years and a bit old. Do you uh, remember yeah. that time? Yeah, I absolutely remember it. Actually, you know, it was, um, uh, I think the wall fell uh, on a Thursday night, like in the middle of the night between Thursday and Friday. So it was a topic in school on Friday. And then at the time, you would go to school on Saturday. So Saturday morning from like 8 to 12, you would go to school. And so on Saturday, I think I was one of the three kids that showed up in class and everybody else would come because they were all on their way to West Berlin to, you know, see what it's like. Um, you could just pass the wall after it had that fallen. That was it. And so I came, the, the teacher sent us home from school and then I want to say my parents got some stamps into our passports and then we basically in the afternoon walked over the border to West Berlin and, you know, did a walk and, and went to like a drugstore and, and bought some stuff that we couldn't buy and some Mickey Mouse magazine or something like that and, and, and came back in the afternoon. So things assimilated very quickly between both sides once the wall fell. So the wall fell in November and then the unification was the West German currency Deutschmark, DM, was adopted, I want to say July 1st, 1990. And then October 3rd is when the unification happened. So within a year, less than a year, uh, the two countries unified into what is now Germany. Did unified Germany implement a draft for everybody? Is that a thing? Like, uh, like a, like a, like, <laughs> oh, you mean like military? Yeah, draft? like a military draft. I think both countries had it. Definitely, East Germany had it. West Germany had it. And then, uh, don't ask me how the politicians decided. Um, but basically, yeah, the, Germany had a draft, and both sides of the country had a draft. And you get drafted out of high school. So you'd get drafted after you turned 18. You had to go to a doctor's appointment to check whether you're qualified for military draft. And then you were, were pulled in after you finished high school. Or if you were already out of high school because you went a more like an apprentice route, then you would be drafted after you'd finished that level of education. And were you drafted? I was drafted, yeah. In the last grade of high school, basically, I got the appointment to get checked. And then I decided I don't want to go to the military. Since so you had to write like an essay to refuse military service and do a civil service instead. And at, at the time, military service was um, 10 months and the civil service replacement was 13 months. And how old were you when you moved to the U.S.? Uh, that was only eight years ago, so I guess 36. Got it. So you did your computer science degree in Berlin and then you got your PhD in mechanical engineering in Glasgow. Is this right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I basically, I, I left high school um, a month later. I would start my civil service. High school went until 13th grade at the time. So yeah. basically, I was 19 years old, uh, did a year of civil service. And then in 98, 
I always have to make sure I'm not mixing that up, not 89, but 98. In 98, I started university uh, doing computer engineering uh, at Technical University in Berlin. And I did that until 2002 and uh, moved down to uh, Southwest Germany and worked for Mercedes. And while I was at Mercedes, I did my PhD in mechanical engineering at Uni Glasgow. So I was working at Mercedes or back then Daimler Chrysler. Yeah. I was working at Mercedes and wrote my thesis and did my research at Uni Glasgow remote, if you will. Did you love that job? Like a German working for Mercedes? I feel like that's yeah. a pretty awesome job. No? Yeah, so I got there by, um, I did robotics at university, um, yeah. driving little mobile robots with laser scanners and whatnot through the building. I had a mentor at Mercedes who came and said, why don't you do the same with the S-Class and, and do automatic parking uh, trajectory planning uh, for the S-Class? And that, I'm like, oh, that sounds like fun, test drives and going to Spain and, and driving on a test track and whatnot. So that's why I moved to Mercedes. And the biggest fun really was, you, you feel a bit like a, Formula One driver, like a second grade <laughs> Formula oh, One driver, because yeah. you go to those test tracks, you work oh, in the yeah. shop, you write some new software, you download it to the car, there's mechanics, you know, that get the car ready, and then you go out on the track. Obviously, for parking and collision avoidance, you don't go on the high-speed oval, you go into like a large, you know, concrete area where you can start and stop all the time. In 2002, was Mercedes working on auto-assisted parking? Yeah. Okay, yeah. honest question. Yeah. Put yourself in Thomas of 2002 shoes, uh -huh. 20 years ago. How far away, when you were working on that technology, did you think that self-driving was at that point? Did you think we were closer than we were? I think I was very skeptical uh, back then of, of full self-driving because of the sensor challenges. And obviously, you know, in Germany, we have all kinds of weather, you know, just strong rain, uh, snow. It's impressive how great our eyes are and how you can see in the dark and you can see even when it rains and when there's, you know, fog and everything. And th I think that's the biggest challenge for, for self-driving, like fully self-driving cars, that there's so many edge conditions. Covering all of that with sensors, um, uh, multiple kinds of sensors and software is a really tough problem. That's why, you know, uh, now it's 2023 and we're still not really there. It's still a like, tough problem. We're, we're kind of getting there in San Francisco, you know, with Waymo and the Cruise, but it's like, it's not fully there. Like you wouldn't put your 10-year-old into a self-driving car and, and send the self-driving car somewhere. So I was skeptical, but I think, you know, we were super excited on autonomous parking was already almost close back then. And, you know, then it started to kind of like be semi-automatic. And these days, you know, you can just have your car park uh, for you. It's specifically, you know, the street parking, uh, which is probably very complex for many, uh, you know, learners. Did you think you were going to stay at Mercedes forever? Uh, like if you put yourself back there? I mean, in hindsight, it's always easy to say, right? Yeah. Like um, I, I'd say... I didn't have thoughts about leaving for the most part, but at some point I kind of like reached that point where I, I felt, um, you know, my journey here is about to end and I, I want to try something new. And, you know, you start thinking about the career path and do you want your manager's job and your manager's manager's job? And, and the more you think about this, you realize that's that's not the journey I want to take in, in, in my career. So what did you go do? You left Mercedes and then what? So I left Mercedes, I actually got recruited. So a recruiter called me and, and asked me whether I want to switch from the OEM side, from the automaker side to the supplier side. Um, so I started a job at uh, Robert Bosch GmbH. So Bosch is a automotive supplier other than also doing power tools and, and whatnot. And uh, so basically I moved from the making the cars and the software for the cars to providing sensors and control units um, to the automakers. And that was short-lived? That was only a two-year process for two reasons. A, you know, during my time at Bosch, I finished my PhD thesis, uh, yeah. you know, got my paper done and went to Glasgow to to do the, the exam and then and, and got my certificate and whatnot. And then um, 
the iPhone came out, and uh, in, you know the iPhone came out in two thousand seven, and then two thousand eight uh, they showed the the iPhone SDK, and the App Store was launched. And I had done I was done with my PhD thesis, so I also had kind of like learned of how to time manage, you know, the time I have after work, and motivate myself to you know do other things than watching TV and going out with friends. And so the moment the iPhone SDK came out, I was kind of like, I want to want to hack mobile apps and I want to build stuff again. And I, it blew your mind. And I want to kind of get away from the automotive industry. I had enough of that. Uh, similar thoughts. Like I looked at my manager. I'm like, I don't want to have that job. Like that's not the job I ever want to pursue. And it might sound ironic now. So basically, I quit uh, late 2008. Quit uh, my job at Bosch. Um, it was just the height of the financial crisis. I will never forget the moment when I went into the HR department and told them I'm quitting, and they're like looking looked at me. As, as I were crazy, uh, and I'm like, no, it's a great opportunity, you know, for for founders uh, to do something new, and and uh, soon enough the economy will recover, and people want to hire somebody like me, uh, and 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 get my services, and so basically became a an independent contractor um, building apps for iPhone and then later for Android. And did you start a business around that? Yeah, I mean, a business in the sense of, you know, I signed up as a freelancer with the tax authorities and the, and the local authorities. And then uh, a year later, I basically joined forces with one of my friends from a university and created a, a, an LLC or like a German version of an LLC. And then did you sell that company? This was before Hockey App, right? So this was kind of like the pre-stage <laughs> to Hockey App. So yeah. we built this company as a contracted company. It had like, you know, we built um, apps for... Uh, the German media industry, for example, the South Park app in Europe, the first version of that was built by us. South Park, the TV show that oh, cool. used to run on, I don't know if that's still run on uh, oh, TV yeah. or not. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, And so we built all kinds of apps as, as contractors or subcontractors for large agencies. And then as we you know, worked through these processes um, with the customer, you quickly realize how painful this is. And you know, back in the day, you had to plug your iPhone into your computer and then sync all the apps, even the test apps from iTunes onto your phone. And you couldn't do that with your work computer because your work computer didn't have all the music and the audiobooks and podcasts on it. And if you do that, you lose all that media on your phone and then you had to go home and sync it again. And so it was really painful to kind of like test apps with customers and, and clients. And then of course they would call and say, the app is crashing. And we're like, okay, so this is we will send you the tutorial of how you can download the crash logs and half the time that never happened, right? Because this is a, you have to go into some library folder uh -huh. and, and find the file and then it's uh -huh. the wrong file from yesterday. And so with another friend, um, we basically figured out that there's a better way to do that and um, then founded Hockey App in uh, late 2010. And you spent about four years building that business, right? So yeah, we started working on Hockey App in late 2010 and then we sold to Microsoft in December 2014. So it was about four years yeah, um, okay. end to end and then... Uh, you ask about that that other company. So when we sold to Microsoft, uh, Microsoft actually bought bo both companies or one owned the other. But basically, um, we thought, you know, we'd only sell the product company and, and all the liabilities of the contracting business would stay with us. And then that old company and um, we would just continue the contract until they run out of, you know, uh, the 10-year period or whatever we had committed to the customer. But Microsoft at the time had a hard time finding mobile talent, like mobile developers. And so they bought both the contracting company and the product company, Hockey App. And so both of them went into Microsoft ownership and all employees, both the contractors that would work on mobile no apps and, uh, and everybody working on Hockey App uh, became a Microsoft employee. Uh, is the dollar yeah. amount public? It's not, right? No, on it's the, not. Like, was it life-changing? I, you know, for me as as the kid from East Berlin, it was definitely life changing. You know, that was the first time I owned a house. I bought a house after we sold the company. We never owned a house before. We were just renting an apartment. 
we had a nice life, but it was life changing from the perspective of having enough money to buy a house without a mortgage or anything. But you never considered not working anymore. I think I never considered as in retiring. No, I mean, I think, you know, with I was in my 30s. It's kind of felt too early to retire. I would have just gone back to do another startup if I had left at the time. And when the acquisition happened, were you excited? I know that sounds like a weird question, but were you excited to be acquired by Microsoft? Yeah, I think, you know, the it's similar to the question you asked earlier about, you know, what does it feel like being the CEO of GitHub? I think, you know, it, it took a while to realize what just had happened. You were a 10-person company getting bought by, you know, a, a multi-billion or, well, I, I guess multi-trillion now public company in the United States. So there was obviously like that was the first time we really engaged with like business in the United States. Dealing with all the lawyers process took a while, you know, going through the diligence, going through the negotiation of the merger agreement or the purchase agreement. And then you sign uh, at a notary office in Germany. A notary has to read the whole contract to you and you sign at the end. At that moment, it was kind of like, okay, now we're done. Now what? You know, and then basically the next, I think we signed on Thursday and then we all flew to Redmond or Seattle on Sunday afternoon. And basically Monday had our first day at Microsoft and getting our badges and getting new MacBooks. And, and You're uh, kidding. Yes. It was literally like we signed December 4th. And so we had like a limited window where we could get onboarded before the whole holiday shutdown started. Uh, and so, yeah, on uh, on the, what is it? Fourth, five, six, seven, on the eighth, basically was our first day at Microsoft. So and you and your family picked up and moved to Seattle. On that day, only my team came with me to get do the onboarding done, and then basically went you know, back to meet, Germany. Meet the manager and went back to Germany, packed you your know, shit, and then came back to the, well, to the states. Applied, applied for a visa. <laughs> That's the the hardest problem is always you know how do you actually yeah. live in the United States uh, yeah. on a legal basis? And so yeah, we moved offices, so we had to move out of our office. We were sharing an office with like six other startups, and that office was not in compliant with Microsoft rules because it had only one fire escape, and <laughs> you right. need to have two fire right. escapes or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and so we moved offices the next week. And then over the holidays, we applied for a visa with the help of, of lawyers and got the visa in February, moved in March. Wow. And were you convinced you were going to leave and go do another startup? What do you think? We moved to the States with the plan of staying for three years. That was kind of like the plan that my wife and I had agreed to. It's and three then Microsoft kind of helped out with you. You know, we had two little kids, a baby and a two-year-old. Yeah, and, and the so vesting was, schedule yeah. for you and your employees. The yeah. vesting schedule, the holdback agreement, those yeah. kind of things. So it was kind of like three of us in the book. I'd say, you know, there were times in those three years where that holdback agreement certainly helped me to stay. Totally. <laughs> one way of totally. saying it or protected me from rage quitting. <laughs> um, and then it, it kind of like other things happened during that time that basically turned me around, I'd say, and convinced me that staying longer actually is fun and gives me motivation. When you moved to America... What did you think? I was so excited. I mean, were you a kid in a candy store? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was always part of my dreams of, you know, living in the United States. You know, you grow up as a kid. In the 90s, I watched all the American TV shows in Germany, in German, uh, dubbed in German, but like nonetheless, right, that, that American lifestyle. Uh, whether it was the Bill Cosby show or then later Friends, Seinfeld, whatever, right? Like that that, that was part of things I knew about America. And, and, and there was certainly a, it was part of my bucket list, if you will, to, to live here and experience the American dream. And my first trip, you know, to the United States was a test drive with Mercedes right. from Los Angeles to San Francisco to New York in 10 days, right? I had seen Sick. all of this, and, but I wanted to live here and see what it's like, you know, uh, living in the suburbs and, and having this kind of like American life. And so it was really exciting and it was really an adventure. Uh, you, you move here, right? And then the two little kids, there's so much to explore. Like the time flew like nothing. Yeah, that's incredible. 
when you joined, the title was Principal PM Manager, which <laughs> feels like a far off title from CEO of GitHub today. Yeah. How big was the team that you managed when you joined? You know, when Hockey App was acquired, the two companies combined was about 10 or so engineers. Everybody was a software developer, right? Like there was no PM, there was no design. Everybody was building software. And then I was labeled the CEO, but effectively most of my time, 70% of my time or so I spent with software development and obviously support and talking to customers. And so when we then came, moved over to Microsoft, Microsoft has that role separation between software development or engineering and product management. And so two of us, me and one of the co-founders were moved into product management and I took over a product management team of, I want to say it was three or four You were uh, like a first line manager of three or four people. Correct, correct. I got to say, like you just made, for you, life-changing money. You started a company in Germany that got bought by Microsoft, which you could probably count on, what, one hand how many times that's ever happened? And you go in, you know, managing a team. Did your pride, I think maybe my ego is just too big or my pride is too much. Like I think I would be really frustrated that I wasn't being recognized for... Yeah my talent, or even just the work that I've done. Did you experience that? I mean, you said for me, life-changing money. I think for most people, it was life-changing money. Totally. Maybe not for the Silicon Valley VC. Totally. But other than totally. that, I think what Microsoft paid us was life-changing, I think, for most normal people in the world. I mean, obviously, we were excited about seeing what it was like at working at Microsoft. You know, I said, you know, I grew up with TV shows, but obviously, we also grew up with following the story of Microsoft and Apple and kind of like, you know, being part of Microsoft uh, was very exciting. Uh, just seeing how corporate America on the West Coast mm -hmm. would operate, how, how big tech company would operate. 2014 was the year when Satya became the CEO. It was also very interesting to see, you know, oh, wow. uh, if the he became the CEO early in the year, we got acquired late in the year. So there was about a year in between, if, a little bit less than a year. And, you know, on our first day, we got new MacBooks from Microsoft. So Microsoft gave us new MacBooks and a USB stick with like Office for Mac on it. And I think Parallels or, or VM were one of those to uh, remote into some Windows machines if we needed to uh, use some systems that only ran on Windows. But like Microsoft at the time had already started that transition to the company it is today compared, you know, to the wow. Gates and Barma era. And so I think we were excited. I mean, there's also the salaries in big tech companies on the West Coast is significantly higher than what all my employees and I made myself in a startup. And so there was a financial upside for everybody where for a time, you know, you can just explore what it's like working at Microsoft, what it's like being on the West Coast, for some of my employees, it took much longer to move over here because of visa restrictions and getting that H-1B or waiting, you know, for 13 months to qualify for the L-1 or whatnot, where there was a certain period of time where you just had the dopamine hits, you know, on a regular basis of learning something new. I think the early days were really easy and, and exciting. Yeah. And then you had almost a three-year run, a little over three years in Microsoft proper, uh -huh. right? Let's just say... The financial incentives had loosened at that point from yeah. the acquisition. And then, what, you started falling in love with the company? I cannot believe you started several startups. Yeah. And then you go into Microsoft, which is one of the biggest companies, and I just can't believe you were still... It's seven years later. Eight. It's eight, eight years. years later. Yeah, it's eight years later. So, what uh, changed? One of the things that changed about, I'd say, half halfway through the three years, um, in early 2016, uh, Xamarin got acquired. Uh, Xamarin, the company of Ned Friedman and Miguel de Casa, that uh, allowed you to use .NET to build mobile apps. And with Nat joining the developer division, my team moved over into Nat's team. So basically, we became part of Xamarin, which was now part of Microsoft. 
And so all of a sudden, all the people around us were also coming from a startup, a larger startup than we have would have been Xamarin. I think at the time of the acquisition was about 450 people. So all of a sudden, you know, we were ripped out of the corporate structure of Microsoft and plugged into a company that also had just gotten acquired. And I think that certainly helped us to regain the motivation uh, you know, similar to us, uh, Xamarin was, for example, using Slack and Google Docs, right? So we kind of like we're back in that world um, of, of a startup ecosystem being embedded into Microsoft. I think that helped with the motivation. And then we were building cool stuff. This was still the early days of mobile development, building developer tools for mobile developers while being part of Microsoft, which is one of the oldest developer companies. Look, Microsoft was founded on the premise of providing uh, basic interpreters to customers. Microsoft, as is hard, is a developer company. So we had, I think, a lot of motivation just building developer tools. And then it wasn't too long, right? 2018. So that was about four years after my acquisition, three and a half years after my acquisition, GitHub happened. And obviously there was a, like a preload to this where we discussed the deal internally and started motivating ourselves that, yeah, we can do it. We can get the deal approved internally. We can get, you know, the founders to sell to Microsoft. That's part of a decision-making process that, you know, once you're in that project, you kind of thrive through the project until it either succeeds or fails and then you fall off the cliff. So I think, you know, in hindsight, as soon as, as Xamarin had joined, as soon as, you know, Nat and many of the other Xamarin folks were there, I got kind of like got a reset that, that helped me to bridge that period. Totally. And you saw a light at the end of the tunnel with a potential GitHub thing coming through. Not when Xamarin got acquired. I think there the light of the tunnel was just that, okay, we are joining forces together. There's a bunch of mobile folks that all know, yeah. you know, uh, what, what an iPhone app makes an iPhone app and, and why what iPhone developers expect as their developer tools. So yeah. it was just the excitement of building something new, uh, bringing together, you know, hockey app with with uh, Xamarin Test Cloud, which was mobile device testing and totally. insights. And so we had all the ingredients. We were like, okay, let's start building. Totally. You this found like minded people. Yeah, um, we found like minded people and it was exciting, you know, to, to launch a product. I would commend Microsoft for they're putting chips on the table around the new generation of Microsoft by making these types of acquisitions and bringing in these types of new era developers. You know, and letting us stay independent to a certain degree, right? I mentioned Slack, you know, that we which were allowed to Which they've still done Slack. a great job of. They've <laughs> yeah. still done yeah. a great job of, yeah. which is incredible the turnaround from the closed ecosystem that Microsoft was, the walled garden, to what it is today. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. Then in June of 2018, Microsoft buys GitHub for $7.5 billion. The company just crossed a billion dollars of ARR, GitHub. Congratulations. Thank it's incredible. You. It's an incredible achievement. Yeah. Maybe 30 seconds or less for the audience that doesn't know. What does GitHub do? Fundamentally, GitHub is the home of all developers. It's where developers store their source code, and whether it's public repositories or private repositories. It's where many developers share code with other developers, right? That's kind of like the social network side of GitHub. There was recently a poll on Twitter where people were asking, is GitHub social network or not? And 69% said not. I think that's a, a too tight view of GitHub. Ultimately, you put your code there, you share it with others. Others can just take and review it. They can fork it. They can take it and never bring it back to you, but they can also collaborate with you. And I think that's a big piece of what makes GitHub GitHub. They we framed the term social coding. And then the other side of this is that we're selling a DevOps product, a, a platform that developers in small and large companies can use to develop software, run continuous integration processes, deploy to the cloud, you know, run testing and ultimately scan for security issues. And now with Copilot, apply AI. 
to the development process. We sell that as a product to companies. And uh, as such, we are like an enterprise B2B business, if you will. Totally. And then when you joined, it was a couple months after the acquisition. You joined as the VP of strategic programs. You spent three years doing that job. Then you spent three months as the chief product officer. <laughs> and then you've been the CEO for almost a year and a half. Yeah. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. How was the interview for the CEO job? I'm super curious. It was a, a call offering me the job. There wasn't like an interview process. And the leadership at Microsoft obviously had seen my impact for the time when I started leading the deal in 2018 until the point in time when Nat basically gave notice. Nat Friedman, the previous CEO, gave notice. And so there wasn't an interview where I was, you know, validated whether I can do the CEO job or not. I think it was more like looking at the impact I had for the three years preceding that point in time. You said something fascinating earlier to me, which was that GitHub is an open source company and we should run our we should run the company open source. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so GitHub is not an open source company, right? Like the GitHub monolith, um, uh, GitHub Ruby on Rails yes. project is not open source. People cannot contribute to it for many reasons of historical nature. But I also think, you know, GitHub, we should be as transparent as possible because yeah. all our customers are also software developers. And I think, you know, the best customer conversations I have is by when I just tell the customer might be like a enterprise in Singapore that sells insurances and I just tell them what software development is like and how we do our processes, how we plan, how we code, how many downtimes we have, how we tackle those. Everybody has similar issues in software development and sharing those with other developers often creates a connection that's incredibly useful for the future. Yeah. Can you talk about Copilot? Can you just explain what it is? It's almost like exhausting here, like how much I hear about it right now. <laughs> Yeah, so Copilot is, we call it an AI pair programmer. Um, and, you know, as a user, you see it in your editor when you start typing something, um, code or comments, it proposes auto-completion to you effectively. And it doesn't only auto-complete the next couple of words or the next line. It can actually auto-complete multiple lines of code, uh, whole methods, boilerplate code, algorithms, test cases, and whatnot. It uses an AI, a machine learning model from OpenAI called Codex that was trained on public source code from GitHub. And it's incredibly powerful. If you look at our telemetry, you can see that in those files where Copilot is enabled, up to 40% of the code is written by Copilot. And so that means, you know, more often than not, the developer just presses the tab key and auto-completes what Copilot suggested. And the cool stuff is, and you, I'm sure you have seen that when you write emails in Gmail, right? It suggests code like as, as grayed out yeah, ghost, words, ghost yeah. text, ghost yeah, yeah, text. Yeah. And uh, if you don't like it or if it's wrong, you can just keep typing and it's yeah. fast enough that it adjusts the suggestion to you. And so that way, even if it's wrong, it might be close enough for you to accept it and then just make modifications to the code that Copilot uh, brought you. And so you become much more efficient instead. In fact, in a case study, we looked at, you know, a group with Copilot and a group without Copilot. And we asked them to build an HTTP web server, I think in JavaScript or TypeScript, one of those. The group with Copilot was 55% faster and 10% more successful. So that's a task where most developers would say, ah, can I just go to Google and find out how to build a web server and I find answers in Stack Overflow? It's not a hard problem to solve and Copilot still makes you 55% faster. And so we truly believe this is fundamentally going to change how software development is done. You have been quoted as saying that in the next five years, it could get up to 80% of auto-completed code. 
Yeah. Actually, Andre Carpati, um, previously the head of autopilot at Tesla, uh, tweeted on uh, December 31st, I think, that he's already writing 80% of his code. And I think the key is that we are up-leveling from writing every command and every definition in code ourselves to thinking about how can we leverage the AI, the co-pilot, to write as much code as possible for us. So yeah, I think, you know, we're going, we're heading into a world where developers are much more architecture and system designers and breaking problems, large problems into smaller issues and thinking about how they can write the method, you know, declaration and the method comments and the description of the method does. So AI outputs the thing close enough that it's 80% correct. It feels like you have a fascinating view into some of the things that are coming down the pike with AI given the relationship that Microsoft has with OpenAI, which you could say is very close. Um, (laughs) And it almost feels to me like I'm talking to someone who's at the helm of one of the earliest and most meaningful guinea pigs for the innovations that we are on the precipice of seeing in AI. And it feels a little bit like some of this stuff that I'm seeing with Copilot some of this stuff that we're seeing with ChatGPT3, mm-hmm. some of these early real-life use cases where before that it was the Gmail thing, and then yeah. before that it was my iPhone showing me a bunch of photos in a highlight reel, and yeah. before that it was Spotify grouping together songs for me. Like I almost feel like now those were simple B2C examples of where AI is subtly making a difference in my life. These are like... Whoa. Does this not feel to you a little bit like the feeling you had when you quit your job at Mercedes and you saw the iPhone and you said, oh my God, I've never seen anything like this before. Or, you know, when the internet came out in the 90s, it feels like the first time I saw the internet, I think it was university where somebody had a modem and they showed me the internet and uh, I could, you know, build an HTML page. And it feels a bit like that. I think the moment last year where that really sunk in with many people, including myself, is when Midjourney and Stable Diffusion over the summer popped up and you could just run, you know, the Stable Diffusion model and render an image. The example we always bring is a corgi on a rainbow or you can just render the New York skyline as if Monet had painted it, the French Impressionist, and and obviously Monet has never seen the New York skyline, and it still looks like a Monet or close enough to that Monet, and I think all of a sudden those image models make you realize how far this generative AI has already come and what's going to come down the road. And I think videos, you know, is probably next animated videos. You know, when we saw the first Pixar movie with a lamp, right, that was like 3D animated videos completely rendered by the computer. I think there's going to be soon a moment in time where you can just write a script for a movie and AI is going to render the whole movie for you in 3D animated fashion. You can think about now you democratize access to being a video producer, if only that's your hobby, but all of a sudden and enable so many more people to do the kinds of things that otherwise only people with specialized hardware and, and cameras and whatnot could do. But you do understand how that could scare the shit out of people, right? I can think of so many reasons why, similar to the internet, was scary when it was first starting, right? Like there's all these things. I'm curious for you, how long is it going to take before most people, right now it feels like I live in Silicon Valley. I work at Kleiner Perkins. My world feels inundated with this. (laughs) I don't think the rest of the world feels the way that I do. 
I don't believe that everybody is on chat GPT-3 right now, even though it's overloading Azure servers. You know, like it, it, there's clearly incredible demand for it. I wonder when will my mom, how far away from her having the Pixar moment, the iPhone moment, how long is that going to take? Your mom probably doesn't realize that on her iPhone or Android phone, AI is already auto-sorting all the photos, right? You select three photos that look like you, and then it finds all the other photos that show Jubin, right? That, that is already AI. is a machine learning algorithm that detects you on all the, your face on all these images. Um, similarly, you know, Alexa or Siri or whatnot, to a certain degree, leveraging machine learning models. So in, in a way, we already took a first step. I think, though, you're right. It is scary for people. I think, you know, it's similarly scary of when robots came into production facilities, when factories, all the sudden, when robots were replacing workers in factories, and that, that fear is there. I think, you know, specifically for software development, the backlogs that I'm sure all Kleiner Perkins companies, definitely GitHub and Microsoft Apps, are so long, and we have a hard time finding software development talent. And in fact, I believe that in the Western world, we're not growing enough computer science students. Um, we're not starting early enough uh, in computer science education. So we will have a developer shortage going forward. And so making developers more productive, helping them to use less time to write more code actually helps us all to push human progress forward. Like ultimately, you know, the number of lines of code that are already dominating our lives through our cell phones, through our thermostat, you know, through your flight booking, everything is software today. And it has exponentially grown from the days of when the internet started in the mid-1990s or so. It's going to be only a magnitude bigger, if not two magnitudes bigger in, in the next 10 years. And somebody has to maintain all that software. Somebody has to write all that software. And if we don't find the tools to make that more productive and ultimately more satisfying, we are not going to see the progress that we need to see. Do you have any hesitation that this is the next hype bubble? I think we're already past that point as, you know, products like Copilot, Jasper AI, now Stable Diffusion and Journey have shown that there's real value out of these products and um, real motivation for people to use them. Um, I've heard stories about people canceling their Netflix subscription because they have more fun in the evening being creative and rendering images in the Midjourney Discord channel. So I think, you know, there's um, we're already past that point. The train is leaving the station and it's clear that generative AI is going to be part of our lives. And going back to the comment about when does this hit most people, mm -hmm. the idea that my phone can tell whose face is whose that's nice. That's cool. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, that's very interesting. Yeah. The idea for a coder that 40% today and maybe 80% in the future of their code could be, that's life-changing. That's career-changing. How far are we from that moment? Because when you see the iPhone, when you see the internet, it's like, you know, you put in your AOL disk into the computer and you're like, mm -hmm. oh my God, <laughs> you know, wait a second. It feels like that moment's actually not that far. I think for the normal human, that moment is going to be when they first get into a taxi that has no driver and in fact will not have a steering wheel anymore. And even maybe the second stage of this is that you put your kids into a car without a driver and send the car to your parents or in-laws for, you know, a date night with your wife. I think, you know, that's the moment where a normal human is like, okay, we have, we have fully self-driving cars and I trust it as much that I would put my kids into this and send them to grandma. Developers have always gone through those transitions, right? We went from punch cards and assembler or assembly language and coding really in machine commands in the 70s and early 80s to like basic and uh, modular too. And then Python was as in COBOL at some point, you know, all the way to Ruby on Python and, and Rust is the new hot thing. 
but more importantly, we went from building it all ourselves to the internet and open source. And today, none of your startups is not using open source, right? They're all 90, 90, 95% of their stack is open source. Everybody would be crazy to start and say, oh, the first thing we do is write a programming language and an operating system and a compiler. And in five years, we're going to actually build those business software that we pitched to you in, in, in the investment pitch. And so we have already gone through those transitions in the past. I think this is just the next, next logical step of that. And it will happen it's already happening with Copilot and it's going to be just accelerating in the coming weeks, really. Like, just look in social media of how many of those startups are popping up left and right. That's the thing that's blowing our mind here is the rate that this thing is improving is so exponential. You just said weeks. Like, it is crazy how quickly. You're joining us for a presentation or a gathering a bunch of CIOs in February and we're customizing a report for them on the state of AI and generative AI. <laughs> and we got done with that report two weeks ago and we're legitimately nervous. It's in a month from now. And we're legitimately nervous that we're gonna have to update some of the report because of the rate of progress and change that's happening in days, in weeks right now. Yeah. It's incredible. And soon enough, the report will also be written by AI and all you get, <laughs> all you do is to feed it some data off social media and, and hacker news and a couple of insights from your analysts into it and the report is just auto-generated. So let me ask you, how old are your kids? 10 and 8. 10 and 8. So l let me ask you, if you have this deep of belief and conviction that this is the next big thing, similar to some of the other technology waves that we've seen, what skills are you advising them to learn now? that will be applicable for them in the future? I think, first of all, I, I think we make sure that they're actually good human be beings and <laughs> can have manners and yeah. interact with other humans because that will remain important for us in the world that um, you know our, the next generation of humans are still nice to other humans. I think it's computer science and the interaction with devices, whether it's you know a smartphone or computer coding will remain important. Luckily, you know most kids do start early these days with tools like Scratch, it's a tool from MIT where you can use little blocks to pull programs together and then you kind of like learn Boolean logic and things. So I think, you know, coding is an important skill. Self-motivation, passion, if you will, for things, I think is what we teach them. And awareness, you know, of what's happening in the world and kind of like an understanding of how the world works. We live in interesting times and a lot of good things happen and a lot of progress, but there's also a lot of challenges. Um, climate change, you know, being one of them where if we don't think about these problems, we're not going to solve them. There was a Reddit thread that you were on so many years ago. And <laughs> someone asked... It's like um, an AMA or something. It's yeah. a long time ago. And someone asked you what advice you would have for your kids or your younger self or for people just starting out in their career. And there was two that caught my attention. The first was always keep learning, read blogs, new books, tech and non-tech, go to conferences, and ultimately find out what you love and don't love doing. How much do you stand by that? It's actually, you gave a better answer than I gave <laughs> to your last question. I think reading is like incredibly important as a CEO, even more so. I spend a significant amount of time every week to read stuff, whether it's, you know, articles on the internet, um, blog posts. Um, what's significant? Um, what do you mean, what's significant? Like, you significant, like how much time? I think it's like probably a couple of hours every day, if not more. No yeah. kidding. Yeah, I mean, it's it's books, it's analysis of the current economic climate. If you're not understanding, you know, why we are, for example, in the current infl inflationary environment, 
it's really hard to explain that to the team and kind of like explain why we are doing the things we are doing. For example, from a budget perspective or from a strategic perspective, you know, if you're a smaller startup, you can just look at runway. And, uh, you know, most startups in the last year or so have started optimizing the runway and have, have, have cut down on, on spending and have started telling their teams we need to either pivot or we need to really focus on just one thing. If you're part of a larger company, that is quite hard because it's always there's always way too many ideas, and including in my own head. And you read more books and blog posts on AI and you're like, we should also do this and this and that. And I think, you know, understanding where we are in the world, understanding the ecosystem we, we live in by reading, you know, and understanding what others are, are writing helps us to focus on the one thing that differentiates us as a company, or maybe it's three things, but it's certainly not 3,000 things, right? Attention is not infinite. Creativity is also not infinite uh, because our time is limited on this planet. So I think, you know, reading helps me to set the context and set the stage for the company. Does it not blow your mind how dominant this company has been for so long? When I was preparing for this, I had Scott Cook, same seat as you, mm -hmm. Intuit founder, and he was telling me stories about how terrified they were mm -hmm. of competing with Microsoft like decades ago. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> they were this incredible company so long ago and they're still this incredible company. It just blows my mind. It's honestly so impressive. <laughs> I'm curious. I want to revisit the yeah. Satya question. Are there any lessons or things that you've learned as a leader from him that you kind of stick as a feather in your cap of, I want to do more of that. I mentioned energy earlier. I think energy is really important as a CEO and as a leader really of any team size. You need to constantly generate positive energy, passion, if you will. If your leader is not passionate about something, your employees and the team members will also not be passionate, right? Like whether your sports team or company, that is true. If you don't believe you can win, you're not going to win. And I think, you know, generating that energy, finding ways to motivate yourself, pick yourself up after a loss. We all lose at times in life, you know, whether you're losing a deal or whether, you know, you have a, had a downtime because the thing you deployed had a bug in it. That, that happens. That's part of who we are as humans. So I think, you know, re-motivating yourself, re-energizing yourself almost on a daily basis, certainly on Sunday night for Monday, right, is I, I think something that I have learned from Satya and, and where I look up to him. Um, I think the other one is in the focus on culture and the focus on culture change within Microsoft over the last nine years now where, you know, Microsoft is a very different company today. The Microsoft of 2013 couldn't have pulled off buying GitHub. The world wouldn't have trusted Microsoft to be a good steward of this company that ultimately hosts almost all the open source on it. And so I think, you know, it's uh, the, this focus on culture, you know, uh, re-energizing yourself, having a clear strategy of what are the focus areas for Microsoft and for GitHub. Yeah. I've watched interviews of you back in the day and <laughs> your, A, your English has gotten much better, but B, your public speaking has gotten much better especially for English being your what, third language? Well, I don't speak any Russian anymore. Not yeah. anymore, yeah. <laughs> no. I wonder, did you know that you weren't very good and then now you're good? Like, how did yeah. that process of improvement happen? I think most people have a pretty good view of how good they are in speaking or how bad they are for that matter. Yeah. I mean, I think I was aware of it. Obviously, when you have English as a second language, there's always moments where you can't just say the word that you wanted to say. And yeah. 
uh, and that gets you kind of like off the rails and then you're distracted by shit I couldn't say that one word and now everybody thinks this dude doesn't speak English very well I have you know for a number of years now a speaker coach and one thing they said that really opened my eyes is that name a big rock or pop group or pop artist right like Taylor Swift goes on tour she still rehearses They rehearse, rehearse, rehearse before every concert, before every tour. They rehearse. The Rolling Stones, 50 years after they played their first concert, still rehearse. And I think, you know, realizing that I get better by doing it more, I get better by working with a speaker coach, by, you know, rehearsing for myself, rehearsing with a speaker coach, actually having a fake stage and, and seeing, you know, what's it like moving around on stage that just makes you better. That's a guitar player gets better by playing the guitar more often. And, and that's almost true for everything you do in life that by constantly rehearsing and training. And I mean, certainly true for sports and running, right? The more you run, the, the faster you run. I think that's just, you know, it's part of my identity. I'd say that I, I'm never happy with where I am and I will always want to go forward and, and get better at things. Do you rehearse meetings before you have meetings? Well, I wouldn't say I rehearse meetings in the sense that I sit myself on a table and I've <laughs> little, like chess against I've yourself. Puppets, I've yeah. little puppets there and I'm like, <laughs> Juven, you, you have the word now. But I, you know, I certainly know in front of um, larger meetings for my Tuesday staff meeting, I think about what are my talking points and how do I want to open up the meeting? What's the context that we set today? You know, what are the topics I want to talk about? How do I feel about how last week went or what did I hear from from an exciting customer meeting? I certainly, you know, I, I use Apple Notes because it's everywhere in my my life and, and just write little bullets of the things I wanted to say. So from that perspective, I prepare them. I, I wouldn't call that a rehearsal. It's impressive, man, especially how many people you're getting on stage in front of these days. Do you have any thoughts? I'm very curious. Number one, would you ever leave America? Would you leave now? Would you go back to Germany? Obviously, our families are in Germany. Um, my wife and I both have our parents, both of our parents, and they're getting older. You know, our heart is with them. And as they get older and, you know, um, health naturally declines. They definitely want to be more with them. So we travel back twice a year to see them in the summer and over the holidays. And who knows, you know, maybe we have another 10 years um, where everything is great. And maybe it's next week that we want to go back for a while and be with them, uh, you know, as, as their life comes to close. And so, yeah, for sure, um, you know, uh, we love our parents and, and that's really important for us and, and our kids. There's many things that are in the way of living in two countries. Um, otherwise, I probably would just do that. Um, you know, yeah. 50% of the time 50 here yeah. and there. School is one of the things. Texas is another one that's kind of like in the way of that. Other than that, I'd say it's really every time I land in Germany, my feeling is I love it here. And why are we not here more often? And every time I come back to the States and Seattle and you look out of the window and you see the lakes and the, the nature and the mountains. It's like, ah, yeah, we are back home. It's it's really hard. Totally. Um, and I, you know, I left multiple places, Berlin behind. And every time I go back there, it's kind of like I found my lost love again and for a couple of days or so. And it's tough. And um, luckily I'm, you know, privileged enough to be able to travel to the countries I want to travel to. How many huge technologies have come out of Europe? SAP? <laughs> <laughs> like how like how oh, many yeah. how many huge tech companies have come out of Europe? Well, I think you know SAP certainly is one to name. BioNTech, you know the the one of the COVID vaccines came out of Germany in partnership with Pfizer. But like the inventors are based in Germany. They're not German though. Um, they're immigrants in in Germany as well. There's a Spotify, uh, a okay, Swedish a company, uh, maybe like, a dozen or so. It's yeah, not, like um, less than twenty, more than uh, five. Yeah. Why? Why is the world like that? Why is it so specific? to hear 
part of this is a cultural challenge. You only realize the power of Silicon Valley once you have been in Silicon Valley, you know, the larger, the Bay Area, if you will, um, between San Francisco and San Jose. And you go to any coffee shop or restaurant uh, and people are just sharing who their lawyer is and who drafted their safe agreement with you. Right? It's this kind of like cultural openness here in, in the Bay Area that is unheard of in the world. I've never experienced that anywhere else. And cities like Berlin are getting closer to that, where there is a bit of a startup scene, there is a bit of a startup culture and, and great companies are founded there or based there. But the openness and the willingness to take risks is, I'd say, unheard of here in the Bay Area. It's yet to be seen that other areas get to that same point. I think, you know, there's other regulatory and privacy legal issues that are holding startups in Europe back to a certain degree. Here, you know, you launch a company and uh, you probably just go with a name that comes to mind and you might have a brainstorming with your founders and then you name your thing and then somebody else has that name already trademarked. They, you quickly pivot to have a new name. In Germany, I'd say there's always the fear of a trademark conflict and you have all a lawsuit and there's like a willingness, the risk-taking willingness is lower and the privacy regulations and, and whatnot are harder on becoming successful fast. You think it's a regulatory thing? I think it's part of it. I think it's not the only reason. I think there's multiple reasons um, playing into this. And, and you think the appetite for risk is lower because partly of the regulatory thing? I think so. I think you know the, you, the, there's, a, there's fear that prevents you from taking the same level of risks that, that people take here in the, in the Bay Area. And there's also maybe a cultural issue that here, you know, you do a startup and if a startup fails, you just move on with life and do another one or join a startup. And I think people in, or I certainly, you know, had a bit of a fear of you will be seen as a failure. Yeah, shamed. Shamed, yeah. You will be seen as, you know, the you could have had the great life of, of working 20 years for Mercedes instead of founding a company and that failed. And I think that certainly plays a role. I mean, the other thing is, you know, even companies that get founded in Europe then eventually move their, their to, the US. to the US to have access to capital and, you know, the the capital and the risk the risk capital um, plays a role. You know what the other thing is in, in Germany, there is a much bigger focus on being profitable or being cash flow positive. And, you know, there's this whole middle, uh, it's called Mittelstand. The companies that are not public companies uh, traded on the stock exchange and, and not a small, you know, mamas and pop shop. It's companies, 200 person companies that make plastic parts and it's a profitable business, family owned now probably for the second or third generation and they're making a nice profit and they never want to become, you know, the trillion dollar company and they never will go bankrupt because they have a solid business that has survived, I think, survived for hundreds of years. I think there's like a company in West Germany that makes gas station signs and uh, like, you know, the sign where you can see what the gallon or, or liter of gas costs and if I remember it right, the story, they own like over 90% of the market, worldwide market. Nobody else does gas station signs and they're making a profit and they have decided that's their business and they don't have the aspiration to become, you know, the next Facebook. And if you have that center of the the, the middle of that span of enterprise world, it is a different, a different game that you play. Isn't there something actually kind of nice about that like it's funny when i first asked the question <laughs> yeah. it was almost condescending it was almost yeah. in a way of why can't europe get their shit together you know now just listening to you talk i'm like man that sounds kind of nice there's no pressure yeah. of more 
when I was the founder of Hockey App, what the VC has always told me is, you're running a lifestyle business. That's the <laughs> that's the VC framing. Instead knock. of you don't have a plan to get to a billion, you don't have a, you don't know how to get to 100 million revenue. You're just running a lifestyle business, and I'm like, yeah, that's a, we had a great, we have a great lifestyle here. We all enjoy what we're doing. We're working with each other. I think you know there's there's certainly something to it. But you said it earlier, you know, then you live with the fear of somebody else, you know, here starting a venture backed startup that competes with you and pushes you out of the market. And it's a bit of that fear of competition and becoming irrelevant uh, that I think, you know, makes that not as lifestyle happy as, as it sounds. It seems like it used to be attributed to not enough risk capital, but it seems like there's plenty of venture capital in Europe. Like it doesn't feel to be a financial challenge or inhibitor anymore. Maybe. I mean, you're, you're more the VC than I am. I think, you know, most- Relative that might to be, here, yeah. no. I mean, it's but it's way more than it's ever been. Way more. It's true for the angel, the seed, maybe the A round. And then it, as your rounds get bigger, you're naturally pushed into having a structure where you have an American entity as well and to be able to get access to those larger rounds that are only available here. So I think from a seed perspective, that's true. But I, as you want to get the investment from Kleiner Perkins or Sequoia, you're almost like- forced to be based in the United States. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, look, if for some reason you ever decide to go be a startup person again, you, you better go call it, you know? Um, dude, I, I appreciate yeah. you doing this. I can't help myself. I have one more question. Do you have a room in your house that's a Lego room? Yes. It's just Legos. It used to be the guest room, but even when it was the guest room, it had it has like a built-in wall shelf and on the top is the Lego city with all the modular buildings in a half street because that's how much depth the shelf has. And then as COVID came and the number of guests in the house grew to zero, basically the guest room got converted into the Lego room. Um, Your wife must love that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the house is full of Lego, but that room certainly has all the Lego and uh, spread around. We have color-sorted bins, so... Uh, all the pieces are color sorted. I was just having this conversation last night. I would like to have more artistic expression. I imagine it really quiets your mind. Does it feel that way for you? It quiets your mind and it pulls you away from the things you were working on that day. Right? Like instead of being obsessed about getting your inbox to zero or responding to all the Slack messages, uh, you're just sitting in front of instructions and you're opening a bag of Lego bricks and then you assemble them together into something and it you know, builds up in front of you. And I think that's very satisfying and it's almost like a meditation. It's almost like a type of meditation that helps you to disconnect from the stress of the day into like a, a calmer mind. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, it, it, it has, you know, if you look at uh, what's called A-Falls, you know, adult fans of Lego, this has only grown for the last 15 years or so. Before that, Lego was considered a toy. And nowadays, um, you see more adults in Lego stores buying $500, $700 sets, right, with thousands of pieces that probably a six-year-old will take a year to assemble and they lose the motivation halfway through the process because it's just so much tricks ahead of you. It's really fascinating how Lego was able to create this second part of their brand and of their customer story. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm going to have to pick up a Lego habit here. I appreciate you doing yeah. this. I'm really looking forward to spending some more time with you at dinner. I asked the same questions to wrap all of these things. The first, when you hear the word grit, what do you think of? So I think of two things. I'm a software engineer and I think grit is two pieces. One is resiliency and resiliency for somebody who deploys services is really clear. You know, you need to be able to handle downtimes. You need to get back up quickly. You need to even know that something is wrong with the service and you need to be able to scale to peak load. 
So that's resiliency. You need to be able to pick yourself up on bad news, bad feedback, employee leaving a company, whatever it is, there's always, you know, some problem in any size of company. And the other piece of grit is passion, positive energy, being able to motivate yourself and the company being excited about the things you're building. And so if you combine resiliency and uh, passion, you have grit. Is GitHub hiring or are there any key roles that you're hiring for? We're hiring strategically in sales and marketing, but it's small amounts of open positions right yeah. now. Navy SEALs. Navy SEALs. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming in. Second time in Menlo Park? Yeah. Second time. <laughs> first time was also with us? Yeah. Well, first time I was with you guys and, and a couple of other folks next door. Yeah. Second time in Menlo Park. Well, I appreciate it's cold. it. It's cold here. It's cold. It's cold today. It's cold. That's right. <laughs> I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time.